So I was watching an episode on the History Channel of how states got their shapes. So that's, that's how nerdy I am, okay? So I, I was watching a show about how they made the state lines, okay? So that's, but I'm into that kind of stuff. I like history, I like geography, so I was watching this show. And a lot of our state lines in the United States follow uh, some natural boundaries like rivers or lakes and things like that. But a lot of them are based upon the, the, the parallels on the, on the globe, right? The, so you have the different, the, these different imaginary lines that they follow. And so a lot of the state treaties or, or um, state charters and things like that will, will say on there that the boundary of this state is such and such parallel line. And this is important because uh, this particular episode I was watching was talking about the state of Tennessee. And in the southern part of the state of Tennessee, our, our southern border is along the 35th parallel. That's what it's supposed to be uh, according to the state charters and stuff. So the, our southern border, Georgia, Alabama's northern border is the 35th parallel according to all these documents. But back in, you know, a hundred, hundred, couple hundred years ago when they were out surveying all of these state lines and, and, and making them uh, on the land, these surveyors would literally go out with two sticks and a chain between them, and they would stretch them out, kind of like they do for a first down in football. And evidently, they were just about as accurate, okay, when they were going around uh, and doing this uh, across the land. I mean, you can imagine, like, climbing up over mountains with uh, two sticks and a chain, you know, that's what they were doing when they were, when they were marking these state lines. And so, although all the documents say that the state line between Tennessee and Georgia is the 35th parallel, it's actually, if you drive and come to the state line sign, it's about a mile off, okay? That's about how far they were off of the 35th parallel. And so it's about a mile south of where it should be. And you go, okay, well, that's really nerdy that you care about that. Uh, here's, here's why it's important. So Lake Nickajack, which is just outside of Chattanooga, uh, is this great lake, and it's all within the state lines of Tennessee, the wrong state line of Tennessee. If the state line were a mile north where it's supposed to be on the 35th parallel, according to all the documents, then part of the lake would be in North Georgia. And that's important because every couple of years there'll be a big drought uh, and the city of Atlanta is looking for water uh, and they want water. And guess where they're looking? Lake Nickajack. And they go, well, you know, it's really supposed to be in Georgia, so won't y'all send us some water on down? And Tennessee's like, nope, nope, uh, they got it wrong, but it's okay. It's in our state. It's our water. And so there's, this, there's all sorts of legal battles and court cases about, about where the state lines ought to be. And this is the sort of thing that happens in life when we build our lives on things that are not certain. When we build our lives on things that Aren't, that are out of place, that aren't where they're supposed to be. And so when we come to our passage of Scripture this morning, we're continuing our study through Psalm 119. And Psalm 119 is, is what we're calling the people of the book. We want to be people who are committed to the Word of God, who love the Word of God, who know the Word of God and meditate on it and memorize it and live according to it because the, the psalm is all about God's Word. And when we come to this particular stanza in Psalm 119, the whole, the whole uh, psalm is a Hebrew poem uh, where each stanza 
corresponds with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And this stanza is the Hebrew letter Lamed. This is not the state line where they got off course. Uh, but this is the Hebrew letter Lamed. And so every, the first line, uh, every, uh, the first letter of each line in this stanza begins with this letter. And this particular stanza of the psalm is showing us how God's word is certain. In our lives. And so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd ask that you stand in honor of God's word if you're able and turn with me to Psalm 119. We're going to be in verse 89 today. The word of God says, Lord, your word is forever. It's firmly fixed in heaven. Your faithfulness is for all generations. You establish the earth and it stands firm. Your judgments stand firm today, for all things are your servants. If your instruction had not been my delight, I would have died in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for you have given me life through them. I am yours. Save me, for I have studied your precepts. The wicked hope to destroy me, but I contemplate your decrees. I've seen a limit to all perfection, but your command is without limit. Thank you. You may be seated. Today, as we look at this particular passage, we're going to see what what we can learn about the certainty of God's word. Uh, And secondly, the impact that that certainty makes upon our lives. And so we begin with an explanation of certainty in verse 89. This is how this stanza begins. Lord, your word is forever. It's firmly fixed in heaven. So the psalmist is saying, God, your word is settled. It's final. It's established, some uh, translations say. It does not change. And he says, Lord, your word is fixed. It's firmly fixed in heaven, which means that it stands high, far, and above the earth. The, the place where you and I dwell, the place where you and I live and breathe and move. He goes, your word is far over that. In fact, in Matthew 5, verse 18, Jesus says, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. And so he says that, that Lord, your word is, is far and above everything that we're, that we're a part of, that it is firmly fixed. In fact, the whole earth is established by the word of God. If you go on into verse 90, that's what the psalmist says. He says, your faithfulness is for all generations. You establish the earth and it stands firm. Your word, Lord, is the means by which the earth was formed. We learn this from the very opening pages of the Bible, right? In Genesis chapter 1, beginning there in verse 1, This is the account of the creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. The spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, God spoke his word. Let there be light. And there was light. And you see that repeated over and over again throughout the first chapters of of Genesis where God spoke and then there was. 
before there, the earth was formless and void, but God spoke and his all life and being was established by the word of God. And all life and being is dependent upon the word of God. In Matthew 24, 35, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And so there's this contrast between what's finite and what's, what's eternal, which is the very word of God. And the word of God is certain because God is certain. He doesn't change. Therefore, his word doesn't change. Malachi chapter three, verse six. Jesus, or the, the, the prophet says, because I, the Lord, have not changed. James chapter one, verse 17 The Bible says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So what the Bible shows us is that God isn't fickle, that God isn't arbitrary, that God doesn't go through mood swings, that God is faithful, that God is trustworthy, that God is unchanging. So when he makes a promise, you can believe it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, Paul says, as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, did not become yes and no. On the contrary, in him it is always yes. For every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore, through him we also say amen to the glory of God. So what is, what's Paul saying there? He, says, he starts by saying, as God is faithful. So because God is faithful, our message isn't a mixed message. Our message isn't a, we hope this works out. Our message isn't a, we're gonna, we're gonna pray for it. He says, it's not yes and no. He says, in Christ, it's always yes. That God's promises are true, that they're faithful, that they're trustworthy. And so, therefore, through him, we're saying amen. We're saying let it be so to the glory of God. So, for us, that means when, when God promises to us that he'll be with us, his word is certain. When God promises to us that I will be your shepherd, his word is certain. When God promises to us that he'll be near to the brokenhearted, his word is certain. When God promises us that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, his word is certain. When God promises us that he'll wipe away all of our sins and remove them as far as the east is from the west and remember them no more, his word is certain. When God promises that he's going to return again, his word is certain. In verse 91, the psalmist says, God, your judgments stand firm today for all things are your servants. He says, everything really depends on you. (laughs) 
Even today, everything is dependent upon the word of God, the the changing of the seasons, the sun and the moon and the stars, the ebb and the flow of the tides, the winds and the waves obey his voice. All of it is done according to his word. All things serve God and are subject to his word. And so because God's word is established, Because all things are dependent upon the word of God, that means that his word is the final authority. That what God says goes. That there's not a higher authority. There is no appellate court. There is no higher word. And when you begin to dig in to God's word, he speaks to us on many things. He teaches us about life and death. He teaches us about eternal life. He teaches us about marriages. He teaches us about families. He teaches us about friendships. He teaches us about how to handle money. He teaches us about the role of possessions in our lives. He teaches us about obeying authority. He teaches us about our sexuality. He teaches us about work. He teaches us about what is truth. He teaches us about our self-worth, and he teaches us about our identity. And when God speaks on these subjects, his word is final. There's no arguing about it. There's no twisting it. There's only complete obedience because it's the very word of God. The Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once said that the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is set the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. We're not having to, you know, make excuses for the Bible or try to, you just let the Bible speak and we obey it. And so since God's word is settled, since it is fixed in heaven, we can and should base our lives upon it. In Hebrews chapter one, beginning of this book in verses one and two, the Bible says, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways, But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And God has appointed him the heir of all things and made the universe through him. He says, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. And so that means that Christ is the final word. That there's nothing to be added to it. That there's nothing to be subtracted from it. It's complete and it's final, and it's the word of life. And we can and should live by it. In fact, in verse 92, the psalmist says, if your instruction had not been my delight, I would have died in my affliction. He says, I live by your word, and I trusted in your word. I delighted in your word. And if I hadn't, then I would have died. And so this is this first part of this stanza is an explanation of certainty. It's about how we can know the certainty of God's word. And you go, okay, preacher, I understand you're saying God's word is final, that it's settled, that it's sure, that it's true. So what does that mean? What difference does that make? Well, that's what the second half of this stanza is about, the impact of this certainty in our lives. In verse 93, this is how the psalmist describes it. 
He says, I will never forget your precepts for you have given me life through them. He says, I don't forget your word. I live according to your commands and they give me life. Some translations say they revive me. And so let's, let's just consider this objectively for a moment. If God is the creator of the universe, and if God is the judge of the universe, and if God has spoken to us in his word, and he's told us what he expects of us and how to live and how to have a relationship with him, then what conceivable reason could we have not to obey it? I mean, what? why on earth would we not want to live by it? Because if we know that he's the boss and we know that he's the one to whom we must answer and we know what he's told uh, us, what he expects from us, then why is there any question about it? Why is there any difficulty in this? Because he is God and we're not. We are the sheep of his pasture and the sheep obey the shepherd's voice. And so the psalmist is saying here, God, your word is settled, it's true, it's final. I, I have trusting it and I'm obeying it because it's your word. And this is what impact it's made in my life. It has given me life. And that same result is what would happen in all of our lives if we would turn from our sin and turn to Christ and put our trust in him and in his word. Because God has revealed his plan of salvation to us in his word. The word teaches us that we have all sinned, that we've all gone astray from God, but God loves us so much that he sent Jesus, his only son, to come and to save us from our sin. And Jesus lived a life, perfect obedience to the Father, a life without any sin, and yet he still offered himself on the cross as a substitute for you and for me. He shed his blood there for the payment for our sins and died in our place because the wages of our sin is death. But God raised him up on the third day where he conquered sin and he conquered death. And he's now offering life and salvation to all who would believe in him by faith to save them. And some of us need to take God at his word today. You don't have a relationship with God like what we're describing. But God has made a promise to us that he would save us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And he proved his promise by raising Jesus from the dead. And so will you trust in him today as your savior? There's gonna be a time at the end of this service where you have an opportunity to make this decision. Are you going to trust in this certain promise of God. That's what this psalmist is saying. He says, Lord, you've given me life through your word. But it also results in complete devotion to God. Look in verse 94, what he says. I am yours. Save me, for I have studied your precepts. He says, I am yours. What sort of difference does it make that God's word is certain? He says, I'm completely sold out to you. I'm yours. It's the same question that the disciples had to wrestle with in their hearts. In John 6, verses 67 and 68, about this time in Jesus' ministry, there's a lot of people that were following after him and it kind of became difficult to follow him at this point. And so a lot of people started to bail and started to leave. 
And so Jesus turns to his disciples here and he says to them, so you don't want to go away too, do you? Are y'all going to leave too? That's the question he's asking. And then Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. <laughs> you see, the certainty of God's word sparks commitment and faithfulness. Where else would we go? Because God is the one who has the words of life. Where else would we go? The problem is that when many of us are confronted with this question, you, know, you want to leave too? We go, well, I got a couple other places I might would go. Right? We listen to what popular opinion says on a subject or what's politically correct or to what our friends say or we try to find guidance from other sources than the word of God. We seek direction from self-help books and living our best life now books and, and we build our ethics and our morals around what's taught in classrooms rather than in the scriptures and we begin to ignore the word of God. But when you look at the life of Jesus, every time that he was in trouble, he used God's word. I mean, when he's being tempted in the desert, what does he do? He begins to quote scripture to Satan. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, he quotes Psalm 22. At that moment of his life, he's using God's word. And that's because God's word is certain. You order your life around God's word. Great preacher Vance Havner said that the word of God is either absolute or it's obsolete. And we today choose to say that God's word is absolute and that we're going to obey it. We're going to put our trust in it and we're going to follow it. What sort of impact does it make that God's word is certain? Look in verse 95. He says that the, the wicked hope to destroy me, but I contemplate your decrees. The certainty of God's word results in him trusting no matter what the circumstances look like. He says, the wicked are trying to take me out, but I am still holding on and contemplating on your decrees. That when everything else in life is uncertain, that God's word is certain. When the ground is shifting beneath you, God's word is the rock upon which you can stand. When the waves of life begin to batter against you, God's word is an anchor for your soul. And listen, in 2020, nothing's been certain, right? I mean, if we've learned anything this year, it's that everything can change in a minute. And so you've had to cancel plans this year. You've had to shift strategies this year. You've had to call an audible this year. But I want you to know today that God's word still stands. Unchanging, always there. Now, I turned the big 4-0 yesterday, right? So uh, I'm now 40 years old. I appreciate all the cards and messages and everything that everybody sent to me. Um, and so I'm at this point in life now at middle age where all the folks in our church that are older than me go, he's just a young whippersnapper. He doesn't know any better. And then all of you younger folks are like, He's so old and out of touch. He doesn't know what's going on, you know. And so I've got like three people that believe I know what I'm doing right now. So, um, so that's kind of where I'm at here at, at age 40. 
And as I would talk to people who had already kind of crested that hill that I went over uh, yesterday, uh, what I would hear from them, a common theme that I would hear from them is that just wait till you turn 40, your body is going to just start falling apart. And so I, I had imagined that when I woke up yesterday morning that I wouldn't be able to see to read in the Bible in my quiet time and uh, that I wouldn't hear when Catherine was speaking to me and, uh, you know, that all of a sudden my back would go out when I got out of bed and I would pull a muscle just standing still, you know, and all these kind of things is kind of what I was hearing from everybody uh, about when you turn 40. And uh, all of these, what I, what I was hearing is that all these things that I had trusted in my entire life was going to start to let me down. They were going to start to, to fail on me, that they weren't certain. And that's what he says here at the end of this section in verse 96. He says, I've seen a limit to all perfection. The phrase could be translated, I've seen the end. And he's referring to the way of the world here, this obviously contrasted in the second half of that verse with the way of the Lord. And what he says is that the, the word of the world is limited. It's insufficient. It's found to be lacking. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't have all the answers. It's gonna let you down because it doesn't come from a God who is omniscient and it doesn't come from a God who is omnipotent, and it doesn't come from a God who is all good, and it doesn't come from a God who is loving. But when you get to verse 96, he says, but your command is without limit. Your word, Lord, knows no end to its perfection. So therefore, devote yourself to the Lord and to his word, and trust him because God work, God's word wasn't laid out by two surveyors with sticks and a chain in between them. It was established by God himself from the before the foundations of the world and it is certain. So Christians today, we are therefore challenged to live according to this word. This word that is certain, that is final, we can live by it. And so maybe this morning you look over your life and you find yourself maybe following the, the word of the world as opposed to the, the word of the Lord at certain places in your life. Today, I'm calling you to choose to live according to God's absolute, final, settled, and certain word. Devote yourself to him and trust him in it, no matter what. And so maybe during this time of response, you wanna spend some time here at this altar or there at your seat in prayer, saying, God, I'm trusting in your promises. Your word is sure and true and trustworthy and settled and final, no matter how the things around me are shifting, no matter how everything in my life is changing this year. I'm gonna cling to your word because it's true and it's certain and it's trustworthy. There may be some here today who need to receive this promise that we talked about earlier, this true, certain word that God has given to us in Jesus, that his son came and 
paid the price for our sins on the cross and was raised from the dead that we could have life and salvation. And today you can receive that promise into your heart by repenting or turning from your sin and calling on Jesus to save you. Say, I need you to forgive me of my sin and I wanna follow you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength as the king of my life. And so maybe you need to make that decision this morning. There's gonna be leaders here at the front that you could come and and speak to and say, this is the decision I wanna make. There might be others here this morning who maybe this is the very first time you've ever been here. Maybe you've been coming for months or even a year or more. And God is saying, this is the church that I want you to belong to. I want you to become part of this church family. Uh, And this would be the place where you grow and where you serve and where you learn and where uh, you belong. We had three folks in the first service came forward and made that decision to become part of this church family. So there might be others in here right now that need to make that same decision. So we wanna encourage you to come. But however God is speaking to your heart today, now's the time that we would be doers of this word and not just hearers only. Let's stand with every head bowed and every eye closed. God, thank you for your word, Lord, that it's sure, that it's true, that it's final and settled and certain. God, that we can trust it. So God, I pray for folks in this room today, Lord, that we would order our lives around your word because it's true, because it's sure. And God, that we would seek you and your word and how we live, or that we wouldn't look to the left, we wouldn't look to the right, that we wouldn't look in all these other sources, but God, we would trust in your word. God, teach us, grow us in our walk with you. Help us to be obedient. Help us to follow you faithfully. God, for those that need to make decisions today, decisions to, for salvation, to call on you as their Lord and Savior, I pray they would come and they would receive this promise, this true certain promise that you've made unto us into their own heart today. God, however you're speaking to our hearts, may at this time we be those who would follow you faithfully. We ask it in Jesus' name.